AM American Majority. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org. This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to Episode 8, The Proclamation of 1763. Within months of the signing of the Treaty of Paris, the British Crown and Parliament began passing a series of acts and proclamations that would accelerate the souring between the colonies and the mother country. It seemed with each act the relationship worsened by degrees, like a tree branch bending a little bit more and a little bit more, until eventually snapped and the colonists would declare independence. In the fall of 1763, in an attempt to quell unrest and war on the western frontier of the colonies, the Parliament passed the Royal Proclamation Act of 1763. And in this podcast, I'll examine the historical context surrounding the proclamation, especially British and colonial relations with the Native Americans on the western frontier of the colonies. Then, knowing what caused King George III to issue the proclamation, I want to take a look at the colonists' reaction and how it set the tone for the revolutionary days to come. But before discussing the act, I have to set the scene. In 1763, as the French and Indian War drew to a close, the native tribes of the American Northwest found themselves in the middle of a new balance of power. For the past two and a half centuries, the French had been valuable allies for the Huron, Iroquois, and the tribes of the Great Lakes region. The British tended to have less luck with Indian relations, and they usually chose to force Indians westward as they settled more land. However, Britain's victory in the French and Indian War expelled the French from North America and suddenly placed all of the native tribes under British control with no great power to rival British authority. The Ohio and Indian land that these Indians inhabited was mostly frontier land, wild and untamed by colonial settlers. The centers of British power on the frontier were forts placed on rivers and other strategic locations. The man placed in charge of these forts was the British general Geoffrey Amherst, whose decisions in the wake of the French and Indian War would have costly effects for the British in the years to come. While they were allied with the French, the Indians had a good understanding with their European allies. The French respected the Indian way of life, their tribal governments, and their chiefs. They periodically gave large gifts to the chiefs to keep them loyal to French authority. They sold guns and ammunition to help the Indians hunt and defend themselves. But when Amherst and the English took over the Ohio Territory in 1763, they deliberately chose not to follow the French model. Amherst stopped giving gifts to the chiefs, thinking that the British had no need to bribe chiefs because they were already sovereign over them. The British quickly fell out of favor with the tribal leaders, with the British making the wrong assumption that the Indians saw themselves as subject to the crown, while instead they perceived themselves as a free people who willingly submitted to the king's authority. Amherst also cut the sale of guns and powder to the Indians because he feared that they would rebel if they were armed. Many Native Americans concluded that the British were cutting off ammunition to the Indians because they meant to make war on them, and these fears quickly spread. It was at this point that an Ottawa chief named Pontiac led a series of attacks on English frontier forts, beginning with Fort Detroit in modern-day Michigan. Beginning in May of 1763, tribes from the Great Lakes region in western Pennsylvania and as far south as Virginia began attacking forts and settlements along the frontier under Pontiac's leadership. These war parties managed to actually capture some English forts, and they inflicted heavy casualties when they could not win. With the western frontier in flames, with thousands of Indians on the warpath, the British were forced to pay attention. Now, Pontiac's rebellion is significant for two reasons. First, it shows us 
that many diverse and independent Indian tribes were able to organize into a confederation when they were faced with a threat from outside of their borders. Second, I also want to emphasize the ethnic hatred that existed on both sides of this war and how that ethnic tension contributed to the passage of the Proclamation Act. This same ethnic tension led the British to believe that colonists and Indians simply could not live together on the same land. In turn, the belief that there could be no peace convinced King George to act quickly by passing the act in 1763, just months after the Treaty of Paris. Let's look at that chronology. The Treaty of Paris, ending the French and Indian War, was signed in February of 1763. Pontiac attacked Fort Detroit three months later. In October of that year, the Proclamation Act was issued, barring British colonists from traveling west of the Appalachian Mountains. King George knew that Indian relations were not going well, so much so that he recalled General Amherst to England in August of 1763, blaming him for provoking the rebellion. The Proclamation Act was the British government's quick fix, a decision made based on frontier warfare and a belief that Indians and colonists would never peacefully coexist. Pontiac's rebellion continued until July of 1766, when Pontiac signed a treaty with the British at Fort Ontario. After Amherst's departure, the British policy toward the Indians gradually shifted back to one similar to the French model. On paper, both parties finally made peace and geographically separated themselves for the foreseeable future. From the perspective of the British government, the peace made with Pontiac would be preserved by the 1763 proclamation. But in the eyes of the American colonists, the Proclamation Act had only made matters worse. There were numerous reasons to dislike the proclamation if you were a colonist. Now, only a minority of colonists actually opposed it, but make no mistake, this was a very vocal minority. First, opponents argued that the Crown had overstretched its authority by prohibiting westward expansion. After all, many of these colonists had fought and died in the French and Indian War to win this land from the French. And now they were being told they could not even set foot on it. Second, what was to be done about settlers who had already moved west of the Appalachians? Were they to be left undefended in the path of Indians or forced to move back east? And which was worse? Third, when the colonies had been established a century or more earlier, they had expected to expand westward indefinitely. Maps from the period show Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina extending from the Atlantic coast to some undefined point off the map. At the outset, they planned to reach to the west coast, wherever that might have been. Now, the king told them that they could expand no further than the mountains. Finally, one of the most prominent arguments against the proclamation was the assertion that the crown was infringing on private commerce by telling land speculators that they could not buy land from Indians. They accused the crown of establishing a retroactive monopoly on land and forcing speculators and settlers to purchase their land from the king. As a result of all of these factors, discontent and anger spread among many of the colonists. Many colonists quietly followed the proclamation, remaining in the specified zone and not moving into Indian lands. However, others openly defied the law, exploiting the British inability to enforce the proclamation. Daniel Boone, soon to be a politician and a Revolutionary War soldier, was the most famous of these defiant Western settlers. Boone headed into Kentucky through the Cumberland Gap of Virginia in 1769, where he established a colony in open defiance of British law. Boone's entrepreneurial, adventurous spirit 
has been immortalized in American folklore because of his refusal to be limited by the whims of a despotic king. No matter how strongly British officials stressed that the proclamation was a safety measure, many American colonists would not be bound by the Appalachians. They were called westward by the mysterious unknown, willing to face the danger of Indian attacks, wild animals, starvation, and other hazards. It was this independent spirit that stirred the hearts of more would-be revolutionaries in the years to come. As the restrictions and demands of the crown increased, the desire for liberty grew in the hearts of Americans further and further removed from the authority of their mother country. A little more than a decade after the passage of this first act, these same subjects would become citizens of a new nation built on the very spirit of liberty that drew them westward in 1763. And I'll continue chronicling this transformation in the next episode. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org and written by Ned Ryan and Eric Josephson and recorded by Ned Ryan. If you enjoy this podcast on American history, be sure to check out the History of the Constitutional Convention by Ned Ryan at AmericanMajority.org or on iTunes.